So now the king has told the Buddha all the different ideas that these different teachers have. And so again, he asked the Buddha, what is the first visible fruit of the spiritual life or the reclusion? He gives them the whole list of jobs again where you have visible fruit and he wants to know what visible fruit one can get otherwise. So the Buddha answers in a way which is one of the four ways that he has to answer questions. One way is to say just yes or no, that's applicable, which in this case it wouldn't be. Another way is to give a detailed explanation. Another way is to ask a counter question. And the fourth way is to say nothing, because the question is so badly put that there's nothing to be said. In this case, he asked the counter question. And the counter question is a very useful teaching device, because it makes the questioner come to the conclusion he's supposed to come to by himself. He's not being told anything, but he makes, gets the understanding himself. So the Buddha asks him, the question is, is it possible to point out any fruit of recluseship that is similarly visible here and now, similarly to the fruits that one gets if one has a good livelihood? So the Buddha says, it is great king, but let me question you about this matter and answer as you think fit. And he says, what do you think? Suppose you have a slave, a workman, who rises up before you, retires after you, does whatever you want, acts for your pleasure, speaks politely to you, is on the lookout to see that you're satisfied. The thought might occur to this person, it is wonderful and marvelous, the destiny and result of good karma. For this, King Ayasatu is a human being, and I too am a human being, Yet King Ayasatu enjoys himself, fully endowed and supplied with five strands of sense pleasure. Five strands are the five senses. As if he were a god. Well, obviously to a workman it must look wonderful the way the king lives. He doesn't know what's going on in his conscience. While I am his slave, his workman, rising before him, retiring after him, doing whatever he wants, acting for his pleasure, speaking politely to him, on the lookout to see that he's satisfied. I could be like him if I were to do meritorious deeds. Let me shave off my hair and beard, put on the robes, and go forth from the household life into homelessness. The words meritorious deeds are just a different way of expressing to make good karma, which is what I talked about last night already. So he sees this king having all the luxuries and having a great um, power over other people and he thinks he must have done a great deal of good karma so maybe he should do that too. He uses him as a model in that way. So then after some time he shaves off his hair and beard, puts on the robes, goes forth from the household life into homelessness. This is an expression of becoming nana monk, which means you go from the household life into homelessness, means 
that you don't own a home anymore, don't have to pay a mortgage, and that you go forth from the household life where all the things in the household life are no longer concerning you, which means um, shopping for your food and these kind of things. You go forth into homelessness where you are actually dependent upon the goodwill of other people. And having gone forth, he dwells restrained in body, speech, and mind, content with simple food and shelter, delighting in solitude. Restraint in body, speech, and mind is a purification system which is at the heart of the whole of the spiritual path. No matter what name we want to give the spiritual path, purification is the heart of the matter. Now, body, speech, and mind are our three doors. That's all we have. We have no other way of manifesting. The mind, as I've already said about karma, is the one that's the instigator. It starts it all. If the mind thinks along the right path, obviously speech and action is going to be along that right path too. So restraining body, speech and mind would mean that the purification system is being used. We have two. One is the meditation. The every moment of concentration is one moment of purification. We can either be concentrated or negative. We can't do both at the same time. Although our mind is capable of switching from one thing to the other at an enormous speed, the Buddha said we can have 3,000 mind moments in the blink of an eyelid. Imagine. But we really don't have that many. So we can switch from purification to negativity very quickly, but we can't do both at the same time. So even one second of concentration is one second more of purification than we would have had without it. So that's one purification system. And obviously when we become more and more concentrated, the purification works better and better because there's more um, time given and more erasing, so to say, of the negativity. We have the other possibility of purification, which are the four supreme efforts, and which those of you who've just finished the seven-day course hopefully remember very well. And those of you who haven't been in the course may have heard them before because you've been with me before and may have forgotten them meanwhile, and those of you who have not been with me before probably have or maybe have heard them or maybe have not. So I will give you that formula as a very important aspect. In fact, a most important aspect of the whole of the spiritual path. If one actually lives by it, there is such a difference between the way one has lived before and the way one lives after. The before and after is enormously different. The formula is like this. 
Not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. Not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen. To make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. To make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen. Avoid, overcome, develop, maintain. If you can't remember the whole sentences, remember those four words. Avoiding the unwholesome, overcoming the unwholesome, developing the wholesome, maintaining the wholesome. And one can prove to oneself immediately when one practices it how much benefit one has from it. The benefit's immediate. One doesn't have to wait for another lifetime, of another day, for another occurrence. The benefit's immediate. If one avoids all negative thinking, one, of course, is already purified to the point where one doesn't even have to deal with it anymore. But most people need to overcome it. And the overcoming is only possible if we know how to labor. And that's why I've said, and repeat often, that if there are thoughts during meditation which are disturbing and dis dis distracting, and take one away from the meditation, it is essential to labor. If they are only very fleeting, and the mind goes right back to the meditation subject, whatever it may be, that is not necessary. The labeling would only disturb the mind then. But as long as the thoughts are solid and really take one away from the meditation, labeling is of the greatest benefit because we can continue it in daily living and then we know what to avoid and what to overcome and what to develop and what to maintain. Now, those four words are applicable to thinking and emotion. And we will see about the purification of emotion also as we go along in this discourse. But here, we'll speak where the discourse speaks about body, speech, and mind. And although in the Buddhist terminology, mind also contains feeling, we usually divide mind into the logical thinking and heart into the emotional feeling. So at this point in time, I'm going to strictly confine myself to the explanation of the thinking process, which has this formula. Not to let an unwholesome thought arise, which has not yet arisen, is of course more difficult than any of the others. And if the purification is not yet to the point where they don't arise anymore, but they still do, it is helpful to know that an unwholesome thought sends a feeling ahead, like a scout that's scouting out the terrain. And the feeling is unpleasant. The feeling is sometimes foggy, Sometimes like muddy, sometimes it's uh, anxious, it's um, as if there's a fire going on inside, 
it is an unpleasant feeling that is sent ahead. And then, because of the unpleasant feeling, what we actually do is we look around for some reason for that and then start thinking negatively. And it happens over and over again. And most people in the world, because they are not either not meditators at all or their meditation hasn't become very mindful yet, and that they're not that attentive, don't even know they're doing it. Practically everybody in the world does it, except a few people who've practiced long enough, and nobody knows it. It's just an unpleasant feeling, it's almost like moods that we have, where we then, but they, they come, sort of they, they crawl into one's being, and then we look around and think something. It must be because he said, or he did, or she said, or she did, or they did, or whatever it is that we can come up with. There are so many things that we can choose from. The choice is so unlimited that we'll never be at a loss to find something. So immediately when we have found something that we can latch onto, the negative thinking stops. And then becoming aware of this negative thinking, which is a little easier because it's pretty solid and uh, straightforward, it's just negative, we usually make the mistake of justifying it. We have that um, notion that we wouldn't be thinking it if it weren't so. Now, no meditator should ever remain in that folly. Because if we have watched ourselves in meditation, we can see that the thoughts arise without anything that we need to do. They just arise. In fact, they arise when we least want them. We have entirely different objectives when we want to meditate, and sometimes, of course, we can fulfill these objectives, but other times we don't seem to be able to, and nothing of our volition. It's arising. So to believe the negativities and justify them is a mistake that a meditator should not fall into. I say should not. They, they do, of course, when people always do this. But a meditator has a great advantage over a person that doesn't meditate. They can become aware of the fact that this justification must be just another thought. And once we have seen that, then we can overcome it. We can overcome the, uh, un the negativity and the unpleasantness in the thought. We don't have to act upon it. And this is what the purification says. First there is the mind, and then there's the speech, and then there's the body, the action. So we don't have to go that far. We don't have to do anything about it. There is this thought, and by overcoming it, we come now to that point of substitution, developing the positive, the wholesome, and maintaining it, keeping it going, not to allowing the unwholesome to stick around, but to substitute. Now eventually, if one practices long enough and diligently enough and has seen that there's nothing else to be done in the world actually in practice, that, uh, which doesn't mean sitting on a pillow all the time, it means watching one's mind. 
When one has done this long enough, one doesn't even have to substitute. One can drop it. Because one can see that one is only hurting oneself. It's the exact opposite of being one's own best friend. One is one's own worst enemy. And most people in the world are managing to do that very effectively. <clears throat> and because they are their own worst enemies, they're also everybody else's enemies. And we don't have a friendly world to live in. But if we make a friendly world for ourselves to live in, obviously we can make a friendly world for everybody around us. And we will be most thought after because it's very rare. So we can see that the most effective and quickest way would be to just drop it. But since that is more difficult, we go to the point, to that action of substitution. Now in meditation, as I've already mentioned, we substitute every thought with attention on the meditation subject. That same action of substitution, which means going away from one and going to the other, changing one's focus, instead of being there, being there, deliberately, with intention, recognizing that's the only thing to do, nothing else matters. That is the substitution. So we have the possibility of doing that long enough, often enough, until it becomes habitual. And then the dropping becomes quite easy. Dropping is letting go. And the whole of the spiritual path has that as its centerpiece, letting go. Letting go, not hanging on, not clinging. The Buddha said, Nibbana is not clinging which means we've got to let go of everything. It's a very short and pithy statement, and there are, of course, more elaborate ones too, but in this context, that should suffice at this particular time. The reason that we should do it as quickly as possible to get rid of the unwholesome and substitute with the wholesome <coughs> is that we are hurting our mind and putting ruts in it or scratches the more often we think negatively, the easier it becomes. Until finally, one might be thinking negatively all the time. Our thinking is habitual. And if you have been labeling at all, you will find that there is a certain pattern to the thought process. Either one is constantly planning, or one is constantly remembering, or constantly worrying. <coughs> Something is one's own pattern. And the more we put the negativities in, the more of a negative pattern we get. So we're hurting ourselves quite unnecessarily and with great impact through our negative thinking. the more we are able to quickly substitute with the positive developed and maintain the positive, the more we protect our mind and the more we give it the chance to let go. 
and to be at ease. The mind which gains insight needs to have ease and energy. So the positivity is not only for making our lives harmonious and peaceful, it's also for helping us to gain insight. A negative mind, an angry mind, an upset mind is not a mind which will be able to see totally different truth than the one we live in. So that's the restraint that we have for the mind. Now the restraint for the speech, which is of course an outcome of our thinking, also has a formula, which again you have heard from me before that if you were in the last course, but I'll certainly say it again, and it's a very useful one in our everyday life. The restraint in speech is this. If we know anything that is hurtful and untrue, don't say it. If we know anything that's hurtful and true, don't say it. If we know anything that can be helpful and is untrue, don't say it. If we know anything that can be helpful and is true, find the right time. Now that means that we refrain from impulsive reaction. Obviously that's not always possible. Everybody has certain difficulties in one direction or another, but having that as a guideline, it at least shows us what we can do and what we are aiming to do. If we know something that can be helpful and is true, to find the right time also means that we actually really know that it can be helpful. Sometimes we may have the idea that we could actually help the whole world because we know so many things, but we haven't actually helped ourselves yet. It is essential that one helps oneself in order to help another. So if it is helpful and if it is true, the right time is when both people have sufficient time to relate to each other, are willing to speak and to listen, and there's nothing but love in the heart of the one who wants to make the speech. Because if there isn't, if there's any hate or anger or dislike or dissatisfaction, the words are not going to make the slightest difference. On the contrary, the words are probably going to have a negative effect, even though they may sound positive. Because the feeling behind the words is not going along with what's happening. So the right time means that oneself is prepared, properly prepared. So that's a restraint in speech. It doesn't mean to be totally silent. The Buddha was not totally silent. That was not um, one of his practices. The Buddha shunned extremes. Completely silent for a while to practice, yes. To go away and practice and be silent with oneself. But not to talk to the disciples, he never did that. That would have been an extreme. 
It, it was practiced in India and still is. But the restraint in speech to know when to say what and how. It's actually a skill. And like all skills, it can be learned. All skills can be learned, including meditation is also a skill. can also be learned. Otherwise, would be no use sitting here, would it? <laughs> and to be restrained in the body, it means keeping the precepts intact. Because we're now coming to the first section of the whole of the teaching, which is also the first section of the sutta. I'm taking my time with this sutta and explaining every little bit of it because we do have lots of time and there are still things happening before we get actually to the first section. But the first section is sila, morality. The whole of the teaching is divided into three parts, sila, samadhi and panya. Morality, virtue, concentration and inside wisdom. And usually morality, moral conduct is used as the first teaching, as a base, as a foundation. And it's usually mentioned first, and so it is in this discourse. In the Noble Eightfold Path, wisdom is mentioned first. Also because one needs sufficient wisdom to get started on a spiritual path. And one also needs sufficient wisdom to have the right reasons for it. But morality then in the Noble Eightfold Path is the second section. So here, the restraint in the body concerns four of the five precepts and in the case of this uh, workman who is now going into homelessness going becoming a monk or thinking of becoming a monk actually um, it would uh, as a novice he would have ten precepts and then as a monk he would have 227 so the restraint in the body concerns that. And one of the five precepts, which is for lay people, for our body, one is speech. And their speech is concerned with not lying. So again, it contains, it's contained in the formula I've just given you because it says it has to be true. So it is a purification which contains moral conduct. And the contentment with simplicity, with simplicity of food and shelter and delighting in solitude. The simplicity of living makes life far easier. The more things we own, the more things we have to look after. They all break, they all get dirty, they all have to be renewed, they all cost money, so one has to earn some to get them. And then, not only that, one gets attached to them and worries about them that they shouldn't get stolen. And because there's a constant change in all objects, the renewal and the cleaning of them is a constant occupation, very often a preoccupation. 
And if it is even just an occupation, it takes valuable time away from things one should really do. So the simplicity of food and shelter is a great help on the spiritual path. And this is what is mentioned here also. Actually, the Buddha said that there are, in another place, not here, four requisites in life that one has to have in order to keep life going. And that's food and shelter and clothing and medicine when one is sick. So these are the requisites. And here it is mentioned the simplicity of it all. There is no end to the elaboration we can have. I mean, it's just a matter of money, isn't it? One can buy more and more different things and more colorful and more uh, different aspects of the same thing. One can have 10 of one thing or one can have 20. One can have 100 or one can have one. So um, the, there's no limit to proliferation. And proliferation in Pali Papancha is nature is proliferation. There are hundreds of different kinds of species, thousands of different kinds of species of animals and plants. And there are billions of people and they all look different. Nature proliferates and we proliferate with it. And one of the aspects which is very uncomfortable to proliferate with is our mind. It proliferates and proliferates, and then when it really does it, then there's no meditation. And then becomes also anxiety arises because of it. So here, with those four requisites of food, shelter, clothing, and medicine, the less proliferation we can manage, the easier life is. We don't have to make quite so much money to buy it all. We don't have to clean up quite so much. We don't have to replace quite so much. We don't have to worry quite so much. We don't have to hang on to quite so much. And we don't have to be involved with so much. And delighting in solitude. And that's an interesting aspect because the Buddha had a lot to say about solitude. He said there are three kinds of solitude. The first one is body. That is when we go away what we might call a self-retreat. Might go away for being physically uh, single-minded without all the usual obligations. Even here, in this retreat, we could say we already have a certain amount of physical solitude because we're not really concerned with our usual daily activities. There are still activities because we've got to keep the body alive, but it is a certain solitude. We've gone away from another place where we usually have a lot of things to do. But that in itself hasn't got the effect yet 
that we would like to get. I mean, we could stay in this place for the rest of our lives and nothing would happen if we don't have mental solitude. And that's what it's all about. And once we have actually been able to establish mental solitude in ourselves, it doesn't matter anymore where we are physically. Anywhere. In fact, there's a story of the Buddha. He was sitting in meditation by a river. And when he came out of meditation, he saw that a huge number, it says 500, huge number of ox carts had gone through the river to the other bank. And just as he was noticing that when he came out of meditation, a wanderer came by and said to him, oh, you have been meditating, I also meditate. And last time when I was meditating, there was thunder and lightning and it was enormous sound but I didn't hear a thing. So the Buddha said, oh, that's very good. I've been sitting at the bank of this river and apparently 500 ox carts have just gone through the river, but it didn't disturb my meditation. Now, if you've ever been to India or parts, uh, parts around there, you know what even one ox cart sounds like. Dreadful. It squeaks and it squawks and it makes the most awful noises. It be very difficult not to say noise and, and just say sound. But 500 of them and then the oxen with it, uh, unbelievably noisy. And yet the Buddha had complete mental solitude. He had the jhanas established to such an extent that even 500 ox gods couldn't get him out of there. Now, that's the ideal of mental solitude. Okay, maybe um, tomorrow's firecrackers are going to be a test, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but meanwhile, until these firecrackers go off tomorrow, we can have some mental solitude. And the mental solitude, which is, of course, the meditative uh, pathway, are the jhanas, the meditative absorptions which are always meant as renouncing, renunciation of thinking. Now, when we have physical solitude, we renounce also certain um, habits and we renounce maybe certain comforts which we're used to. But it's much more important when we have mental solitude solitude that we renounce the thinking because renouncing the thinking is already a step towards renouncing the ego support system it's only possible to have an ego support system as long as we're thinking the more we renounce that and the smaller and smaller the observer becomes the less of the support system is there and this is a difficulty that most people find when they first start out in meditation, that they can't renounce the thinking. The mind goes all over the place and tells all sorts of stories because the ego wants to be part of the whole thing. Eventually, of course, it's quite and stunned. As we sit and practice quite um, uh, diligently and keep on practicing, 
the mind quietens down and then we can renounce and as we can renounce the mental solitude which we then experience doesn't mean that we have to turn ourselves away from the world not at all it means that the mind finally has found a way to get new energy and experience levels of consciousness which it could never otherwise experience so this mental solitude which is experienced through meditation makes it possible to live in the world in a much more harmonious peaceful and insightful way and then there's ultimate solitude ultimate solitude is usually meant to be nibbana ultimate solitude means that the mind not doesn't fall back into its difficulties at all anymore full enlightenment the full and fully enlightened person like the buddha and his fully enlightened disciples would have a mind that would no longer be subject to any of the difficulties which we all know it says about an enlightened one although touched by worldly circumstance never his mind is wavering so the world is there and an enlightened one is touched by the world just as much as we are but the mind remains in its state of equanimity and as it remains like that it has the ultimate solitude it is apart from being influenced it doesn't have it cannot no longer be influenced so first we can try to have physical and then mental solitude and eventually maybe we'll get ultimate solitude the buddha certainly um recommended periodical solitude physical so that the mental solitude could become established because if one doesn't do that then one can't establish it there um now having said all this buddha says so this person he dwells restrained in body speech and mind content with the simplest food and shelter delighting in solitude now suppose he's still talking to the king huh? suppose your men were to report all this to you would you say bring that workman back to me let him again become my slave my workman rising before me retiring after me doing whatever i want acting always for my pleasure speaking politely to me ever on the lookout to see that i'm satisfied now the king says certainly not venerable sir rather we would pay homage to him rise up out of respect for him invite him to a seat invite him to accept from us robes arm food dwelling and medicinal requirements for requisite and we would provide him righteous protection defense and security what do you think great king if such is the case is there or is there not a visible fruit of rectitude there certainly is venerable sir this great king is the first fruit of rectitude visible here now that i point out to you so what the buddha is doing he's starting way down at the bottom with the whole thing it goes all the way to nibbana of course all his discourses usually do there are a few that don't but 
it's common that a discourse starts out with the most ordinary everyday occurrences that we all know and teach us step by step to Nibbana. That's why the discourses are called graduated teachings. Buddha compared his teaching to going into the ocean. First you stand by the seashore and you just get your feet wet in the ocean and then you go further in and you can go down, it gets wet to your knees. And as you go further in, maybe wet, you get wet to your waist. And as you go further in, eventually, you completely are immersed in the water. It is a gradual decline in the ocean uh, floor, which gets you completely wet in the end. And here, the teaching is a graduated teaching, which is a gradual rise of more and more purification so that in the end the whole person is completely purified. So he's telling him about one of his employees becoming a monk. What would he, the king, then do? He's also telling him that for another reason, because kings and such people have an uncanny notion that they are very mighty almost omniscient and can do what they like and you don't really have to be a king to have that there are other people who have these ideas too and this will certainly help him to get a clearer idea that that isn't so if this workman actually had the idea to become a monk he would no longer have any jurisdiction over him and he would have this, ma this person, this workman, would have an immediate benefit because the king would look after him, which before the workman had to look after the king. Now, obviously, this is quite clear and obvious in any Buddhist society that such is the case. In the West, and here, we might not be so clear about this, how this works. But in the Buddhist dispensation, monks and nuns are mendicants. They are not um, uh, breadwinners. They're mendicants. Their gift to humanity is not necessarily the teaching. Not everybody is, has that talent to teach. And it's not necessary either. Their gift is to show that there's a different lifestyle, that there can be a contemplative lifestyle. And their gift is also, if they can, to show what that lifestyle produces just by being so. Now, you have exactly the same thing in the contemplative orders of uh, in Catholic monasteries and nunneries, where these people don't necessarily go out and teach at all but they live that lifestyle. And it shows the world that there is something other also. Now, in Buddhism, the contemplative lifestyle was never done behind walls. For a period of time, one goes away to practice meditation, but not behind closed walls, as it has been a habit in Catholicism and the contemplative orders. But it has always been a mendicant order. That is that the lay people support 
the monks and nuns. And so the king supports, of course, this workman immediately. Not only that, but he's delighted because there's one that was his employee before and obviously must have been a very good person to become a monk, to renounce the uh, um, household life. So it is a little bit to the credit of the king that he had such a person there. So he's very delighted about that. And he sees immediately that that is a visible the workman. So to him, it doesn't show yet what would happen to him. He's always had everything done for him anyway. So, and he's always had his requisites. So he's not that enthused because, and also another thing is that he knows very well that the Buddha was a prince and lived just like him in a palace with servants all over the place. So he wants to see more and he's not quite satisfied yet with his answer. Luckily, otherwise we wouldn't have such a long discourse with everything in it. <laughs> so then he says, Is it possible, Venerable Sir, to point out some other fruit of recluseship visible here now? So he says, Well, you know, tell me something else. It is great, King, but let me question you about this matter. Answer as you think fit. So again the Buddha replies, with a counter question because he wants the king to come to the conclusion himself. What do you think? Suppose there is a farmer, a householder, who pays taxes to maintain the royal revenue. The thought might occur to him. It is wonderful and marvelous the destiny and result of meritorious deeds. For this King Ayasattu is a human being and I too am a human being. Yet King Ayatasattu enjoys himself fully endowed and supplied with the five strands of sense pleasures as if he were a god while I am a farmer, a householder who pays taxes to maintain the royal revenue I could be like him if I were to do meritorious deeds let me then shave off my hair and beard put on saffron robes and go forth from the household life into homelessness so he pays taxes to maintain the royal revenue well, here one pays taxes to maintain the, the country, huh? same thing. Now, after some time, such a person abandons his accumulation of wealth, be it large or small, abandons his circle of relatives, be it large or small, he shaves off hair and beard, puts on the robes and goes forth. Having gone forth, he draws restraint in body, speech and mind, content with simple food and shelter, delighting in solitude. Now suppose your men were to report all this to you. Would you say, bring that man back to me? Let him again become a farmer, a householder, who pays taxes to maintain the royal revenue? Certainly not, venerable sir. Rather, we would pay homage to him, rise up out of respect for him, invite him to a seat, invite him to accept robes, armed food, dwelling and medicinal requirements. We would provide him with righteous protection, defense, and security. What do you think, great king? If such is the case, is there or is there not a visible fruit of recluseship? There certainly is, venerable sir. This great king is the second fruit of recluseship, visible here now, that I point out to you. So now, before, first he had this workman in mind, 
that was a slave and had to run around doing all sorts of things for the king. And now he's talking about a farmer or just a householder, just any person who has to work hard to pay taxes and to um, be able to um, look after family and look after all the obligations. And again, he points out to him that if such a person wanted to make good karma and renounce the ordinary, everyday kind of life to live a more simple and a more spiritual life, then would the king support him? And the king said, yes, certainly I would. I would certainly support such a person. But again, the same thing happens. The king has never been a farmer, nor has he been a householder. And neither has the Buddha been a farmer or a householder. Both, one was a prince, the other is a king. And again, the king thinks, yes, it's all right, but it's not enough. There must be more to this than that. And he particularly was so taken with the fact that the Buddha and his monks, 1250 of them, if you remember, were sitting so quietly when he arrived. Not one was fidgeting. All were quiet. Nobody was talking. And he must have had got the impression that they were very contented because a contented person can easily be quiet and not want anything else. So he has that idea in mind that all these monks and the Buddha are very contented. So he wants to know why, because he's very discontented, of course. So it certainly has the same application that we have. And although one can say that these uh, similes the Buddha gives, that this workman and this farmer and householder or householder, that they are becoming monks because they want to get out of the difficulties that they're in, the Buddha said, it doesn't matter what the reason is, as long as you come and do it. And the same goes for meditation. If we come to meditate just because we want to get a bit of peace of mind, that's okay, as long as we do it. Because eventually we will find out that although that's very nice to get a bit of peace of mind, it's not the aim of the meditation, but the aim is to have complete peace of mind through insight. The same is with monks and nuns. There is a story of a cousin of the Buddha who couldn't make up his mind whether he wanted to get married or become a monk. The Buddha made a great impression on all his relatives because he had become the Buddha. So the, many of them wanted to follow in his footsteps. So this one couldn't make up his mind. So finally his parents got completely uh, fed up with him and arranged a wedding for him. And the Buddha was invited as a guest of honor. So he went there and he had his meal at this uh, wedding party. And uh, then after the meal, the wedding was to take place. And when the Buddha had finished his meal, he said to this young man, he said, come, carry my bowl to the monastery. The young man didn't really want to, but uh, anyway, he couldn't say no to the Buddha. 
sweet, sweet stuff to him. And after a while, it, the walk was very long and tedious. He said, um, I have to get back now because I have to get married. And the Buddha said, is it so important to get married? And he said, yes, she's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And uh, I just have to get back now and get married. They are waiting for me. The Buddha said, all right, just a few more steps and we're at the monastery. It's uh, not very far, so okay. So he went with them. When they finally came to the monastery, the Buddha said, you know, if you become a monk and practice, you can have 500 women, all more beautiful and much more desirable than that one you're getting married to. And the monk, the young man said, really? <laughs> the Buddha said, yep, but you have to practice properly. So he said, all right, I'll stay. So he stayed and became a monk. And every once in a while he'd go to the Buddha and say, so what happened with these 500 women, you said? And the Buddha said, well, you have to practice properly. And he said, all right. And he went back and meditated and did his practice. And every once in a while come again and ask. And it became more and more uh, seldom that he came to ask. And finally, he attained enlightenment. And of course, there was no need to ask anymore. It was all done with. So the story shows, and the Buddha said that quite often, it doesn't matter why we come. All we have to do is practice, and we'll get the answer anyway. What the Buddha had in mind with the 500 women much more beautiful than the one that he was getting married to, were the devas. Because he could see that this particular young man had a, a propensity for uh, getting a very um, concentrated meditation and uh, being able to attain um, absorption states. And if you die in an absorption state, you get, get to a deva realm. And there, of course, are millions or billions of devas, but the uh, <laughs> sexuality is no longer um, uh, practiced. So they were, they are much more beautiful, but it wouldn't have made any difference anyway. But this uh, monk was able to become enlightened. And so the question resolved itself without even being answered in that way. So whatever we, whyever we came to meditation, eventually it will have to dawn on us that in this dispensation meditation is the means and there is a definite result which can be obtained but that will have to come step by step and slowly so here the king is quite happy with these explanations that are given that there are these uh, that he will, would look after them these uh, people that become monks but he still wants to have more because it's not it, it doesn't apply to him so much he um, first of all he can't become a monk he's got the whole kingdom to look after and he's got already got a family so he can't do that and uh, also it appears from the story that he wouldn't have wanted to he didn't want to become a monk because his uh, karma, which was very bad because of the killing of his father, wouldn't have allowed that. It's good karma which allows it. Bad karma is 
there's a resistance in the mind, even though one may not be aware of it. So he wants to know more about what goes on. So um, the second visible fruit is the farmer and the householder, and then it says, he says, is it possible, Venerable Sir, to point out any other fruit of requisition visible here now, more excellent and sublime than these two fruits? So he wants something more excellent and sublime. So he actually talks just like us, doesn't he? He just uses different words. It is possible. Listen, great king, and attend carefully. I will speak. Now this is something that the Buddha often did. He told people to listen properly because he was very much aware of the fact that we have a great difficulty in listening properly and paying proper attention. He says, attend carefully. You see, an unenlightened mind is so full of junk that it's very difficult to put new stuff in. And that's why it's so difficult to retain it. It has all its own personal ideas about life and oneself and the the difficulties and the hopes and the wishes and the memories. It's very difficult to put the reality of the truth in that. So the Buddha often told people, listen and pay attention carefully. Now because the Buddha was a very, a person with a great, had an enormous personality, people would listen. And it is found, we can find in the suttas, that numerous people attained enlightenment just by listening to one discourse. They could feel it. They heard it and they felt it. But one can only do that if one doesn't debate it. You see, if you hear something and start debating with yourself about it, you can't feel it. You can either debate or feel. Now that doesn't mean that the Buddha ever said that one must believe everything. Believe is something entirely different again. Believe is something that we don't even understand, we just believe it. That's not wanted either. But to understand and feel it makes it possible to have the result, which is the understood experience. The debate debate which goes on in our heads is an ego trip. We've all got it. There's no blame attached to any of this. It is, what do I think about this? Is this right? Is it not right? Can I do it? Can I not do it? Should I do it? Should I not do it? All these kind of stories that we tell each, that we tell ourselves, we may not even tell it to anybody else. But when we do that about any of the discourses of the Buddha, of course we don't have that feeling. So in those days when the Buddha was alive, of course it was a different story. I mean, his strength made it possible for people to feel. They were very lucky that they were alive at the time of the Buddha, and it's quite possible that we were alive too and didn't listen properly. (laughs) (laughs) Anything's possible. So we're going to have to listen this time, no? So, continuation tomorrow evening, huh?
quite clear, totally muddled. Yes? Well, there was a fruit that I experienced today. It must have been a fruit, because it was quite uh, marvelous. It was all I had to I had to go to town today on business. So I'm kind of afraid of it, and it really did all look kind of white male. But there were several things that happened that must somehow have to do with what I have taken out, what I took along with me, but I There was like there were three bus drivers in a row that were not solvent or uncooperative in the last question, but they were just almost like as if I knew them and they were having a conversation even though I just asked them directions. I had to transfer several times. And getting out here was kind of complicated, like there were two bus lines and nobody seemed to know which was closer to this place. You know. uh, I had never experienced this before. Usually I try to be, when I ask a lot forever, I know that you have to be really careful, you know, all this. But that there was, in this whole sequence, that these people just sort of, all for this moment when I asked the question, they were really, they were thinking, you could tell that they were with you. And several things along the road while I was going to town and coming out, there was something, it must have been something that, that I took from here, even though I was not really aware of it. But, you know, possibly just a little more kindness on my part, a little more quietness, also maybe, uh, maybe the softness in the voice, whatever it is. But there was really a fruit there. I must really admit that. <laughs> yes, it's, um, that's why I keep saying loving kindness is the oil that oils the wheels of daily life. It's no longer such a um, very, almost like a push and pull experience, but it, it flows better. The secretary, to go along on the same path, the secretary of this place, her name is Jean, and uh, she is in the office, I think only three times a week, was there today, and she said to me, I'm so glad that your group is here. You have already quietened this place down. <laughs> it's a wonderful feeling, she said. So obviously, there's something to this. And uh, if you keep on meditating and continue the, the practice, you will notice it. It's will, it accompanies you everywhere. And one becomes extremely surprised if it should ever not work. You wonder, what went wrong this time? Why didn't it work? Because it works all the time. And it's very rarely that it has um, that aspect of not working. So it is, um, obviously it also didn't work sometimes for the Buddha, because people are just too um, steeped in their delusion. Devadatta tried to kill him three times. You know, he didn't manage it, but uh, he tried. But most of the time, 
it's the loving kindness and the um, lack of anxiety which transmits itself to other people and that's why I say that our thoughts are the ones that are either polluting the environment or creating a, a wonderful place to live in so you experience that today and that's really nice <laughs> So tomorrow we'll hear more about these these cruise ships. Oh, yes. Mm. Yes. Sure. Um, when we talk about experience in something, like first you recognize, first you resist something, that's a feeling, then you recognize you've got it, then you accept it, and then you said, then you have to drop it. I remember a period in my life that at one point I realized I was very angry, and it took some time that. Um, it seems like I didn't act out angry, but I had to realize how angry I was, and mm-hmm. I had to talk about it. And then, over a period of time, I was able to drop it, and I know I'm not angry anymore. But it almost seems like I did have to talk about it. I did have to. I didn't have to act it out, but I had to really realize that I I was very angry at this one time in my one period in my life. Mm-hmm. So I have a problem almost with just dropping it. It was a very intense anger. Well, most people have a problem with dropping it. It's not easy. It's a very difficult thing to do. It takes an awful lot of practice. Um, and usually intense anger would also indicate that one isn't able to drop it. Because as one becomes able to drop the negativities, one no longer experiences intense anger. It goes hand in hand. So intense anger at another person, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, If it can be resolved by talking about it, that would be surprising. It can be recognized by talking about it, but it cannot be resolved. There's no way we can resolve our inner emotions just by talking about them. I don't know what else I did, uh, because I had a period that I talked about it a lot, and I know the anger I had then, I absolutely don't have anymore. Well, maybe that same person isn't around either. No, that's true. You don't talk, one doesn't talk one's emotions away, one recognizes them through talking. And that's very good. We have to recognize them. Recognition, no blame, change. There has to be a change. Now change comes about automatically through meditation. There's no doubt about it. How much 
or how little depends on the amount of practice one does in meditation and how concentrated one becomes. The other way of changing is the substitution, the constant recognition and the substitution. Now, intense anger may happen because there is an intense situation. Now, if that intense situation has abated and situations become more normalized, then anger is not intense, but it is mild. And mild anger also needs to be substituted. A person who has no more anger at all is a non-returner. One step before our hand. So you have more insight, you gain far more insight by seeing the sadness and by having seen the sadness of that person and the uh, bitterness of that person, it is much easier to arouse compassion Mm -hmm. because a person has dukkha and is very uh, unhappy, so we can have compassion. But that does not um, protect us from getting angry at other times. Mm -hmm. Even having got rid of one anger, it does not protect us yet. No, I, I didn't mean it that way. I didn't mm. meant this particular anger yes. that I had. And it, it went away from me. Yes. And that already is, is one step towards having much less anger. Because if one can get rid of a very a strong situation in one's heart, and then one can already diminish all the other situations, one has got to be constantly on the alert, constantly on the alert. There's always something happening. So you still think that uh, you resist, you resist, you recognize, you accept that you've got it and you drop it. Is that what you still think? What you're saying? The resist? I don't know what I mean, the, where the resistance I mean, comes in. Okay, well, at one point I didn't even realize that I was angry, but I was just inside. Mm-hmm. Then I realized I was angry. Yes. And I kind of accepted that I was angry. Mm-hmm. So, sure. And then you drop it? No, recognition, you recognize it. You accept it, that means you don't blame yourself for it. And you change it. One is constantly on the alert for alert whether something like this is arising. We have so many opportunities to get upset, irritated, anxious, fearful, angry, disliking, resenting. It's unbelievable. So many opportunities. Recognition, no blame, change. I think the more you're able to disbelieve your thoughts, the more easy it is. Yeah. Easier it becomes to let them That's right. drop. That's right. But as long as you believe your thoughts, you can't. That's right. And one of the dangers of that is also to react too quickly. When you react to a thought very quickly, 
it appears as if it's really something true. But if you take time and slow down, which here we can do easily, then we have far better chance to disbelieve. You know? So slow there if we are a little slower about it. Yes. This business with the accepting I I heard about this business of the labeling and stopping, you know, the accepting office the accepting. And for some reason, either I didn't understand it, but I dropped that middle step, the accepting part, for a while until I got to the next teacher. It was like about a year or two. And so I started having a fight with my thoughts. I was hearing God, hearing God, and I stopped this, you know. And mm. kept, I stopped getting angry at this business that mm. they are coming back again and again. And then the teacher, another teacher, and I came with a big partner in meditation, made a wonderful explanation that really had home and it made it so much easier from then on. And that was, he said that that thought that you just become aware of, that it distracted you, is actually like a guess that is telling you, you just have stopped concentrating. So you should thank it, say thank you, and then let it fall. <laughs> and so when, when I started, it was kind of a neat way to just deal yeah. with the situation. But at first I was not recognized, I was yeah. struggling, you know, like I was going anyway. Yeah, that's so the acceptance part. Really very, very of course, if without acceptance we would be angry at ourselves constantly. And then we would be angry at everybody else too. So the uh, no blame part is, is very important. That's a very good idea. All of these negativities are actually uninvited guests. So maybe we can have some thought about how to deal with an uninvited guest without becoming very obnoxious about it. Yes? So to be able to recognize your thoughts in daily life, do you advocate as much as possible labeling as you're, as you're going about everything you do, consciously giving, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. giving labels to your feelings? Yes. I can see how it would be if you get very angry, then then you can say anger. Oh, it's too late, much too late. <laughs> <laughs> Once you got very angry, it's much too late. So you're trying to be as mindful as you can and consciously label everything as it's going on. Yes. Actually, I was going to talk about mindfulness and tell you what to do, but I'll have to talk about it tomorrow. <laughs> 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 but the... Um, the labeling is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Dhamma nupasana, the uh, mindfulness of the content of the thought. And that is of the greatest importance to know that without any judgment about it, just knowing it and recognizing which ones are beneficial and which ones aren't. And the more you practice labeling in meditation or become aware of this, what goes on in meditation, the easier it is to do that in daily life and eventually it becomes so habitual you, you can't not do it. And then it's quite easy to drop. Until then one has to substitute. Because the dropping is an action which is immediate. Whereas the substitution that can take time. So the more habitual it becomes to label, and when you label, 
you see, you are an objective observer. Just like in meditation, when you label, you're an objective observer. And the objective observer is not the thinker. They're two different things. So the objective observer can look at the thought and say, ha, very unwholesome. And that can be the end of it. Or he has to say, it's very unwholesome, I'll put something wholesome in. But the thinker can't do that. The thinker keeps thinking. And it goes on and on and on and on. And probably gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So the objective observer is the person who's mindful. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Think of yourself as your own mother and your own child. The mother who loves the child even when it does something wrong. The mother who has enough wisdom to know what's best for the child and helps it to do that. The mother who is all-embracing, loving and caring. Feel that love for yourself, filling and surrounding you. Think of your parents and reverse the role. You are the mother, they are the children. Love them, independent 
of your judgment caring helping Think of those who are nearest and dearest to you and feel yourself as their mother. Loving them, caring for them, helping them, not judging. Fill them and surround them with your love. Embracing them completely. of yourself as the mother of everyone who is here. A large family, fill everyone with your love, embrace everyone with your care. Think of yourself as the mother of all the people who are in this place. Taking them all into your heart. 
giving them your warmth, your love and your care. Not judging, just loving. Think of all your friends and feel like a mother towards them, helping and caring, loving, taking them all into your heart. Think of all the people you know. Make them all into your family. Love them as a mother would. Let them find a home in your heart. Think of anyone whom you find difficult. Be that person's mother. Children are often difficult, and yet mothers love them. Love that person too. With all the warmth and care your heart has.
think of the people in your hometown as one large family. Love them as a mother would. Embracing, caring, concerned, helpful, full of warmth. 